Uh, I don't just hate waiting. <laughs> so uh, the sermon uh, today is about waiting. As uh, now the problem with that uh, opening was that so many of you fell for it so easily. That was uh, <laughs> it's a bit offensive, really. But anyway. Yeah, so we, we had a sermon yesterday for Matthew 25, as uh, those of you here will remember, about how to wait for Jesus, and uh, uh, we are to wait um, as those uh, who are waiting for a wedding and wanting to bring honour to the bride and the groom uh, upon their coming. We're to wait in a way that's consonant with kingdom values, God's active kingly rule now, and the, its uh, consummation in the future. And today we're looking at a second parable, uh, namely from uh, the verses that were read to us, the parable of the bags of gold, or as it's sometimes been called more traditionally, the parable of the talents. Um, I reckon as life skills go, waiting is uh, pretty underrated, really. Uh, I remember as uh, a young child going to my grandfather's house on Christmas Day, and my older sister and older cousins teased me relentlessly as my waiting for the presence to be opened was so evidently impatient. And uh, one of the things um, in, which is part of my work is waiting for my book to appear. I've been working on a book for about 15 years and I sent it to the publisher and I'm, I'm still waiting uh, for the editors to get back to me. It'll be another year before it comes out. Um, uh, not like uh, certain faculty members who have one come out every four, four to six months. So it can be a long time waiting and uh, I think actually as a definition of what it means to be a Christian, waiting is really part of our identity. Right through the Bible you've had this. If you read Hebrews 11, the heroes of the faith all had this very long protracted wait. Many of them didn't receive what they were waiting for. And in the Psalms you'll have very often the note struck where the psalmist says, I'm waiting for the Lord. And it reminds me of Wes Hill's book, which is worth the price of the title, uh, Washed and Waiting. So I think waiting's a good thing to think through, friends. And the two parables that Jesus tells, are, uh, I think they really do hit home. Uh, today's parable, as, as we've just heard it read, is about being productive while we wait, like trustworthy servants investing our talents, to use the way the term is often translated in older versions of the Bible, while waiting for the return of our master. So if yesterday it was the theme of preparedness as we wait, uh, today it's the theme of productivity. As I mentioned yesterday, uh, parable really is an extended metaphor, and a metaphor is a familiar image which says something memorably with feeling. So what does this parable say? The trick with any metaphor or parable is to work out what uh, bits are there to make it memorable and what bits are the actual points of the parable. So if you go through the details of this parable, it's, uh, it's pretty tricky to work out which bits are significant. Not every bit, because if every bit was significant, that would be an allegory. So is it significant that uh, three, the three servants get five, two, and one talents or bags of gold? Uh, is it significant that they're called servants or slaves? Is the parable endorsing slavery? Is it an endorsement of sound investment strategies, wealth accumulation, um, interest rates being at a decent level, that kind of thing? Is it about the master being on a journey, as we have in verse 14, 
or him being a long time away, as we have in verse 19, or about him commending and rewarding the servants, verses 21 and 23, uh, is the description of the master significant? In verse 24, which is quite striking, isn't it? I know that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have scattered seed. Is it significant that the third servant who doesn't invest what God gave him gets thrown out into the outer darkness? One thing to say, certainly this was a familiar image in the ancient world because servants or slaves did various functions for their masters. You had manual labourers who simply worked the fields in that agrarian uh, context. You had household slaves who did the domestic duties in the house. And I like this one. You had accountants who were slaves who uh, basically did the books for the master. And uh, uh, some even ran the master's industry or farm. So this this is uh, some of Jesus' Uh, parables are quite outlandish. This one's not. It, it's pretty straightforward and familiar to the people uh, who would have heard it. So in verse 14 where it says, uh, a man goes on a journey, called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them is a, is a kind of familiar thing in the ancient world. And Jesus' purpose in telling the parable is the same as yesterday. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey is a reference to the kingdom of heaven. Now, the word talent's an interesting one, and in the older versions, as I said, instead of bag of gold, you get talent. Talent basically means a weight, a measure of weight. So a bag of gold is is a pretty good translation. And uh, usually you'd commit a horrible etymological fallacy uh, in reverse to say that uh, what Jesus is talking about is our talents, but it's not actually that far off. So I'm actually going to go with it uh, because the word talent is actually derived from this passage. This is one of those spots where the Bible has influenced the modern English language. So turn the other cheek, all of those kind of uh, idioms that people use without realising are from the Bible. The word talent, it's a very high likelihood it comes from this parable. In our day, talent means a gift or a skill that you might possess. There's a slight difference here. This is a gift or a skill that's been given to us by our master. So... If a parable uses a familiar image to say something, uh, what's this parable saying to us? I think there's at least two things uh, connected to the two different types of servants. The first one is, like faithful servants waiting for our master's return, we are to make wise use of our talents which have been entrusted to us. And I don't think the amount given to the first two servants is of any significance, uh, the five and the two. Because if you have a look at the way in which the master deals with those servants, it's identical. Verse 21, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. It's, it's identical with verse 23. The point the parable makes is that those who are loyal to Jesus are like those who make wise use of the talents that have been entrusted to them. So, brothers and sisters, the point is that as we wait for the return of Jesus, we're to use the gifts and talents that God has given to us. Now, that takes a couple of things. First, you have to know what those gifts are. 
and then you have to develop those gifts. Yep. And well, a third thing really, then you have to use them. But uh, you have to identify them, to develop them, and then to use them. Now, in my view, this parable is like a promo for studying at Ridley College. We could just put, Tim, we could just put this up in one of our advertising campaigns, just this parable. Because really what it's saying is, you come to college not just to learn stuff, but as a place of discernment. And uh, very intentionally, the faculty, believe it or not, we think about how we can not just teach, but help to form you. So formation is a big part of our work. And many aspects of college life are devoted to that very thing, to formation. The most obvious one is the learning communities. The, the learning community that Reese runs, that Charlie runs, that Anthea and Richard run, and so on. They're, they're places of discernment. And uh, one of the most satisfying things we do as college faculty is to hear that our students come to college without having any sense of being affirmed in their giftedness or calling. And slowly but surely over their time at college through different experiences, they learn what God has called them to do. Reese is smiling very much here. All right. We'll have to learn what that's about later. <laughs> so I do encourage you, um, if you've got further studies to do, to learn, uh, to join a learning community. Um, if, uh, um, if you're online, to uh, do uh, guided spiritual formation and uh, to do some field ed. And uh, Graham Stanton uh, is employed by the college for this very thing. He's a practical theologian who is going to help not just online but on campus to uh, make sure that we work hard in this area. Those who are loyal to Jesus are like those who make wise use of the talents that have been entrusted to us. And the parable of the talents describes different ways that people wait for Jesus' return. And it says that believers are to wait for the Lord Jesus as slaves commissioned to improve our master's assets, to advance his kingdom. And in our waiting, we're not to be passive. I think it's the same in the Psalter. The, I wait upon the Lord, it's not I just sit, sit on my hands. We're to grow, carefully manage, and develop the resources that God has entrusted to us. I mean, maybe Paul was thinking of this when he wrote Romans 12, when he said, if your talent is to teach, teach. If your talent is to serve, serve. If to give, give generously. If to lead, do it diligently. If to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So the notion of gifts and talents from God and our responsibility to use them is a very biblical one. Secondly, I think this parable says to us that unlike the wicked servants, it's really the same point uh, reversed, we are not to sit idly waiting for our master's return. Uh, and indeed, the emphasis in the parable is actually more on the third slave and this is often the case with the parables of Jesus. Anthea could probably enlighten us on that later because it's part of her research. So the third one's the really key one. It's like uh, the three little, uh, what's the one where they blow the house down? Three little pigs. It's, it's a literary device to, to bring the big, the, the kicker at the end. And this is the kicker, friends. We're not to be like the third slave. What does he do? He just digs a hole. And uh, you think that's almost comical, isn't it? Well, in one sense, it's not comical because in the ancient world, they didn't have banks. So if you wanted to keep something safe, you had a few options. You could give it to a friend. 
Sometimes they deposited them in uh, uh, money or uh, valuables in a temple. So the temple's the closest thing we have in the ancient world. And you get an allusion to that in Romans 2 where Paul says, do you rob temples? It's not of the cantalabras, it's of the uh, deposits that others have given. And uh, putting money or uh, an investment in a field, of course, is part of another one of Jesus' parables in, in Matthew 13. The treasure in a field. Now, what interests me about this third slave is what leads him not to use his talents. Did you notice what that is? Verses 24 and 25. The man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And the master replies at some length and actually doesn't dispute the description. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. But the problem was it was a non sequitur. He, he inferred something from that that wasn't the right response. From that, he should have realized I better get working. Instead, he, he sat on his hands. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest unless uh, in the European banks, which are now at negative interest rates. But, but still, sometimes these don't translate directly. So the explicit problem with the wicked servant is his attitude to his master, or you could say his view of his master. And the point is that faithfulness with our giftings and using our gifts depends on an accurate view of God. There's a direct link with how we understand God and how we will behave in the meantime. Because if we understand God, as I'm suggesting the first two servants did, as very generous and gracious in giving five talents or two talents to us, in being very wise in uh, um, giving those talents, uh, if we understand his sovereignty in allotting them to us as he wills, if we respond to his mercy and love by using those talents for others to come to know him, then we will live productive lives. So it's another ad for Ridley, really, to come to college to make sure you get a truthful understanding of God. It's fundamentally important. It's practical. It will lead to a different view of our lives and how we use the talents that God has given us. A truthful understanding of God leads to a productive investment of our lives in his service. And the people who don't understand God aright will be those who dig a hole and put their talent in it. Now, if a parable uses an image to say something, and we've just seen what it says, memorably, I think it's a, it's a great story, so it, it, it can kind of stay with you. It's not like a popcorn movie kind of uh, all formulaic and uh, special effects you come away thinking well that was nice it's a kind of mo it's more of a woody allen movie it, it kind of stays with you and you think about it afterwards a bit annoyed that kind of thing but uh, in this case it stays with you so it's memorable but it's with feeling yeah a parable is uh uses an image to say something memorably with feeling so what's the feeling that this parable evokes what does it leave with us 
And I think the description of the third servant is quite disturbing. He's called wicked and lazy in verse 26. And then down in verse 30, uh, is it verse, yeah, in verse 30, he says he's, uh, the servant is described as worthless and he's cast out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this parable could unnerve some people, couldn't it? It could make you think, well, this is um, a little bit like God has given us a syllabus and, uh, sorry to bring this up, uh, one day he'll set the exam. And there'll be a pass-fail system. And those who fail will suffer extraordinary consequences. Will I be good enough? Will I pass the test? So does the parable teach salvation by good works? This is one of the tricky things with interpreting parables. I think that the problem with taking the parable that way is that that understanding collides with the Gospel of Matthew's message about the Kingdom of God and salvation. The Gospel of Matthew insists that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, those who admit their failure. And uh, Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew comes to call sinners, not the righteous. And in one sense, the primary application, the original application of this parable may well have been to Israel. Israel had certain gifts given to them by God, the law, the temple, and they were meant to be a light to the nations and they failed to do so. And on the other hand, Jesus' followers as the new Israel are to be a light to the world and not to end up in darkness. Now it is true that God will call each of us to account on the day of judgment and ask what we've done in his service. I mean, passages like 1 Corinthians 3 uh, insist that. And in, in that case, we'll learn whether uh, especially the leaders, whether their work was um, of value and lasting, gold, silver, precious stones, or uh, of uh, useless value, um, wood, hay, straw. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 puts very famously, we, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But I think the fruit of our justification in the final judgment is um, will be acknowledged, but it's not the basis of our justification. Every parable we uh, read, we have to discern the points being made and the window dressing. It reminds me of the parable of the unrighteous judge in Luke's Gospel, where God is compared to an unrighteous judge who gets ticked off with the widow, who keeps seeking justice and finally relents and answers the prayer. And obviously there, the comparison of God to an unrighteous judge is not the point of the parable. On the contrary, the rest of Scripture insists that God is a righteous judge. Um, and uh, to get all techie on you, uh, metaphors are not isomorphic mappings of one domain onto another, but a suppression of some elements and a highlighting of others. And in this case, I think the highlighting of the element is about our requirement to be faithful. The climax of Matthew's Gospel, if you're interested in final condemnation or salvation, is in 2028, where it says, the Son of Man gives his life as a ransom for many to secure our forgiveness. And for those unnerved in Matthew 25 about the possibility of being thrown into darkness, when we get to chapter 27, Jesus himself endures darkness so that we might stand in the light. 
Now, I think uh, the feeling evoked by this parable is one is pretty disturbing, but its point is not to unnerve our confidence, our assurance, but to make us realise, yes, we, we really need to get on to discerning, developing, and using the talents that God has given to us. How are we to wait for Jesus? We are to wait as those commissioned to improve the master's assets that he has entrusted to us in the hope of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Hallelujah. I was just for sharp. Totally balanced. Interest of balance. <laughs>